0: Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Lindsay McMillan, who's Professor of Economics at University College London and also Director of the Centre for Educational Policy and Equalising Opportunities, and also by Anna Vignoles, who's Professor of Education at the University of Cambridge. And today we're going to talk about something which is never uh, far from the news uh, particularly at the moment and that's the issue of social mobility uh, in the uk Uh, what is it how is it changing do we have more or less of it in the uk than elsewhere Uh, do we want it but perhaps most importantly what can we do uh, to get more of it Perhaps we can start, um, uh, Anna, by asking this question of what what it is we mean by social mobility and why it is that it is, um, or most people think it is, such an important thing to be trying to achieve.
1: So if you ask um, the average person what they think of when they uh, hear the term social mobility, I think most people think of doing better than your parents, so the idea that um, if you were born, say, to um, a relatively low-income parent, that you yourself would go on to do better in the labour market, get a better job. We're economists, so we tend to think of it in economic terms. So we're thinking uh, higher earnings and better jobs than your parents. But I think it's also important to say that the term social mobility implies both upward and potentially downward mobility. So in other words, what we're actually measuring is the relationship between your parents and yourself in terms of how much you earn and the kind of job you do. And a country with higher levels of social mobility um, has more people from, say, blue-collar job backgrounds doing management jobs, but it might equally also have fewer people who uh, come from graduate families um, maintaining their position in those graduate jobs. They might be moving down. So it's upward and downward that we should be thinking about.
0: Uh, and Lindsay, that that's one of the, the challenges, isn't it? Everyone can say they're in favour of social mobility, but nobody wants their children to be the people who are moving down uh, because if some people are going to move up, some other people have to move down to make space.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, typically when you hear politicians talking about social mobility, they'll always just be focusing on the upward side of things and not like to discuss the fact that, If we're talking in terms of relative mobility, which is the concept of how well you do relative to other folks, this is a zero sum game. So if we are going to have people from disadvantaged backgrounds moving up the social ladder, then equally we need to allow those from more advantaged backgrounds to move down that social ladder as well. So the relative mobility concept that we'll be talking about mostly in terms of the research around social mobility here is really giving an idea of how equal the opportunities are for children from different backgrounds as they grow up.
0: And that makes the sort of economic backdrop ever so important, doesn't it? Because, I mean, there was a a sense of a period, um, correctly or not, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, that there was a lot of social mobility because a lot of people were moving up. But that was because the occupational composition of the economy was changing. There were more and more uh, managerial or higher paid jobs. But if the economy is stagnating, then uh, if some people move up, others have to move down. Whereas if the economy is growing and changing, then... People can move up whilst at least not moving down in absolute terms.
1: That's right. And I mean, I think the other issue to think about is we know in recent years, um, there's been some kind of hollowing out of the labour market. And by that, I mean a reduction in the number of sort of intermediate level jobs. And I think that may be a particular challenge because it means that the upward mobility that previous generations experienced is going to be lacking at the bottom uh, but also um, people at the top have a very long way to fall if the alternative is very much between a graduate job or, say, uh, a service sector job, uh, you know, working in you know, a cafe or whatever. That's a big gap in terms of the status and the income of those jobs. And I think what tends to happen over time is that parents in particular, as you rightly say, Paul, fear their children sliding down. And if they've got further to fall, they fear it to a greater extent and obviously try and hold on to their positions.
0: And that inevitably makes actually genuinely achieving social mobility more difficult because for entirely understandable reasons, it's becoming even more important for parents to do everything they can to ensure that their children don't fall down and therefore that there isn't space at the top for those who want to move up.
2: Yeah, and this all links in with the increase in income inequalities as well that we've been seeing over the past decades. The idea that the stakes are much higher in countries with high income inequality is a very real one. And parents really do take more notice of the gaps and how people are going to fall in high income inequality countries.
0: And and that's um, something, uh, I mean, what you're describing there is uh, got this wonderful name in Uh, in economics, or maybe it's in social science more generally, the Great Gatsby Curve, um, doesn't it? Where if you've got higher levels of inequality to start with, then you've probably got lower levels of social mobility as well.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I think it was coined by Alan Kruger, the great Alan Kruger, um, back in uh, around about 2013, this idea that countries with higher income inequality are also countries with lower social mobility, It's interesting because you get a lot of kind of discussion or rhetoric around the idea that people are willing to accept income inequalities if they are coupled with the quality of opportunities. So if anyone can reach those those really high incomes. But what the Great Gatsby Curve is telling you is that these two move together. And so in countries where you have high income inequality, the chances of people from different backgrounds actually being able to achieve those top incomes are very, very uh, wide.
0: And uh what do we know about um level of social mobility uh, in in the UK? Do we have um relatively high or relatively low levels of social mobility by international standards at least? It's very hard to know what is high and low, but what 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 sort of social mobility do we actually have here?
2: So in terms of intergenerational income mobility, um the UK is often ranked towards the bottom of any international rankings, at least in terms of developed countries. So it comes as one of the least socially mobile countries, rivaled only really by the United States. And given the Great Gatsby curve relationship, that's not altogether, altogether surprising, because we know that Britain is also one of the countries of highest income inequality as well.
0: So one so of the important Aspects, of course, of social mobility, but not the only one, as we'll come on to discuss, is what happens in terms of your education. So, so Anna, what 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 do we know about the probabilities of people from different parts of the uh, income or class distribution getting into different bits of the um, educational uh, distribution?
1: Yes. So, as you say, I mean, education um, is a pathway to social mobility. Uh, We can come on to in a moment just how much it really does act as an as a escalator for social mobility, some issues around that. But if we think about uh, just the sort of the, the maths of it, we now have around about half the cohort going to university. Um, and the chances of you going to university if you come from the bottom fifth of households is far lower than uh, 50%. It's around about one in five. But nonetheless, that does imply that there is this educational route for uh, students from low-income uh, or low socioeconomic status households to uh, achieve well in the education system. And obviously the next question is, and how does that help them in terms of achieving their the long-time ambition, which is not just to get a degree but to achieve social mobility? Um, and that's where it gets trickier because actually um, – it's not enough to have a degree. We know from our own research that if you compare graduates who've, you know, graduated from the same university with the same degree, you're still seeing those from uh, higher income backgrounds and indeed those who've attended independent private schools doing better in the labor market. So education's a pretty vital route, um, a necessary, if you like, but not sufficient condition to achieve social mobility.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very striking, isn't it? The uh, the work that shows you can take two kids, um, one from a better off background and one from a less well off background, and you can they can end up with exactly the same education, go end up at the same university with the same degree. And the one from the better off background will end up on average earning significantly more than one from a less well off background, even though you might expect the one from the less well off background to have overcome more barriers and possibly to be brighter to have got there. Um, there are other uh, other things which determine how well you do in the labour market.
1: Yes, and I think that's one of the challenges here around uh, the sort of general perception that if only we had more education, we'd have so- more social mobility. And I don't think that is the case. We can sort of see that in the data. Um, and as you say, I mean, there are two problems. Firstly, your chances of succeeding in the education system are still heavily determined by your parents' background, by their education level, by their income level. So the education system in and of itself has not severed that link between the parent and the child in terms of their their socioeconomic status. But even if you do succeed in the education system, we've then got the problem that you've just referred to, Paul, where going into the labor market, coming from that wealthy background gives you a set of advantages that you can then use to uh, ensure that you get higher income. And and we can talk about what those advantages are, but some of them are very obvious, um, not least networks. But I think also subtler ones, like, uh, for example, being able to take longer to do job searches and get the more optimal match in the labour market, um, you know, time is a luxury that you have if your parents can support you and that you don't have if they can't.
0: Lindsay, you've looked quite a lot at this issue about um, how people from different social backgrounds do in, in the labour market, I mean, even given education. I mean, can you um, can you throw any more light on what it is that, A middle class kid might have um, that a a working class kid doesn't, even when they sort of arrive together um, at their employer's door?
2: Sure. So yeah, the report that we released last week for the Social Mobility Commission um, looked at differences in social mobility across local areas in England. And this was one of the main findings from the report that actually in the most mobile areas, the education qualifications are really sorting how well you do in the labour market but in the least mobile areas, even if you're turning up, as you say, with those same qualifications, you're ending up, uh, if you're from a deprived family, still facing these additional penalties in the labour market. I mean, the reading of the literature on this is is about a number of things, as Anna said. One of the things is about the opportunities that are available in that area. So uh, you can imagine that sons from different backgrounds, people from different backgrounds um, have different abilities to move to seek out opportunities. So geographical mobility is probably an important part of this story that at the moment, we're not really able to pin down in the data set precisely. Um, But there has been some other studies that have showed that um, people from more advantaged backgrounds are more able to um, seek out opportunities in other areas if they grow up in areas where opportunities in the labour market are more lacking. But then also thinking a bit more about um you know the role of, of family resources for example. As Anna said, the importance of being able to extend job search, being able to take low-paid internships. I know that unpaid internships are supposed to be illegal now, but being able to take very low paid uh, internships to get job experience. Um, but there's kind of wider factors as well beyond finance. So thinking about the kind of the social networks that enable individuals to seek out opportunities. And then there's a whole literature around the kind of cultural capital that individuals have, where their points of reference are, how they can go into job interviews and they can get along with the people who are interviewing them because they can make reference to which Oxbridge College they went to or which um you know classical pianist is their is their favorite It's these kind of um cultural barriers that sometimes can shut people out of job opportunities or progression within the labor market in a way which uh you know might not be picked up necessarily in in the large quantitative data that we use but comes out really nicely in some of the qualitative studies around this work
1: i think the other thing to note on that is also attitudes and ability to take risk um and this is, you know, risk. It comes with a sting in the tail. You take a risk, you can fail. And I think coming from a more financially secure and advantaged background gives you the confidence to take that risk. And obviously the return you get is, you you know, you get a better job or whatever. And I think that's a really important aspect that's often missed when we're making policy, um, thinking about how from the perspective of a low income young person, this feels in terms of taking risks about careers and such like. And obviously, with the COVID generations coming into the labour market, into a very difficult labour market, we're going to see two things. We're going to see, first of all, obviously and understandably more advantaged parents trying to help their children and protect them from the worst of that labour market, but also uh, problems around um, being unwilling to take risks because you know it feels like a very scary place at the moment, financially as well as other health issues
0: it's interesting we've been talking uh, about um the better off and the less well off the more advantaged and the less uh, advantaged in terms of thinking about social mobility here and one of the things that I've, i find very very striking when you look at um, any of the work on this is that it, it's it, it's an issue right across the distribution so if you're a little bit worse off than someone then you've got a you've You've got less chance of ending up at the top of the distribution and all the way down. So if you're one sort of rung down the ladder, if you've got 100 rungs on the ladder, each rung you start off further down, your probability of doing well goes down as you go down every single rung. This isn't just something that's different between people right at the top and people right at the bottom. It's something that's continuous all the way.
1: Yes, that's really interesting. I think I think also it comes back to what we were saying about the role that parents have in all this, not just by providing income, but the way they think about their children's future and prospects. And of course, every parent, regardless of where you are on that ladder, wants to protect their child's position. Um, and so it may be, for example, we've seen this in apprenticeships, um, that although many apprenticeship jobs are arguably a sort of a somewhat lower socioeconomic status than, say, a managerial or a graduate job, you still see the same phenomenon, which is access to those apprenticeships and to the jobs that follow from them, heavily skewed towards those who've already got parents either in that profession, occupation, or certainly in that um, social class.
0: Yeah, as, as as someone whose son has just finished a, an apprenticeship, I can uh, I can certainly vouch for uh, vouch for for that. Um, how important are private schools in in all of this? I mean, again, another another sort of way in which we often talk about this is the uh is, is the dominance of the privately educated at the top of the uh sort of most prestigious professions how, how important is private education or those who go to private schools or is that uh, uh or, or is that something of um a, a small part of what we're worrying about here
2: i mean private schools make up i think is it seven percent of the population um you know, so in the broader context, it's a small part of the problem. There's a lot of variation within the state sector in terms of the educational achievement of people from different backgrounds. There's a lot of variation in what the quality of your local school looks like based on the area that you live in. Um, so so I think the the sole focus on private schools sometimes can be a little bit of a distraction from the wider problem. The reason that we do focus, I guess, on private schools is that when you look at the numbers that are getting into Oxbridge, that 7% becomes a much higher number. When you look at the proportions getting into some of the top occupations, it becomes an even more staggeringly large number. Um, And so it's this kind of, this opportunity hoarding is one way of putting it, this way of guaranteeing some form of success for people that are getting this kind of education. And I think that's become particularly apparent this year in terms of the kinds of inputs that kids at private schools have been getting relative to kids at state schools. Um, I think I saw a stat this morning that 80% of private school pupils had online lessons, live online lessons from their teachers during lockdown, compared to 20% of state school pupils.
1: That's right. And I think with all of these issues, we've got to be really clear that there are two Um, phenomena at work here. The first is that private schools uh, do well in terms of getting their students to have high levels of achievement that then enable them to access uh, the degree courses that then lead on to high status jobs and high income jobs. That's one route. And then there's the other thing that we've been talking about, which is if you take two graduates from the same university with the same prior levels of qualification, same subject, you're still finding an advantage in the labour market. For the independently schooled uh, person. And um, I think we need to be very careful there. I mean, it could entirely be down to networks and, and cultural um, sort of advantage, um, but it may also be due to the fact that those independent schools are also developing a wider set of skills in their students, those non-cognitive uh, skills that you know often um, go by the wayside in the state system, partly because the state system has far more limited resource and therefore can do much less with its students. And so we need to think quite intelligently about what we can learn from the independent sector, as well as asking why is it that they still secure an advantage in the labour market?
0: Yeah, it's very hard to study this subject without getting uh, kind of depressed about the um, about the results that that, that, that that one sees. Again, as, as you say, um, it's not just uh, that um, those from better off backgrounds and private schools get much better um educational qualifications it's even given their educational qualifications they then do better in terms of the profession and earnings that they manage to access um so i suppose that um we, we really ought to come on then to the sort of so what you do about it um uh question i mean i suppose that uh, and there are two parts of that i mean one is um there remain very big educational differences what do you do about that and then uh, what do you do about the differences that open up further beyond um, education? So I know this is a desperately hard question, but I'm going to ask both of you to have a have a go at it. I mean, if you um, if you had a, a free hand, let's start with the education um, system and you really were focused on um, giving better opportunities to those from less advantaged backgrounds. What would you do? Um, Lindsay, would you like to try that one first?
2: Sure. (laughs) Big question. Big question. Um, So if I was given a free hand, um, I would reform the school admission system and I would uh, potentially introduce uh, fair banding or lotteries so that people had access to good schools, regardless of the neighbourhood that they lived in. Um, I think breaking down the link between house prices and the quality of schools that um, pupils can attend is, is a really important one. Um, I was going to say I think education policy part of it is easier than the labour market policy part of it. But when I then say school admissions, I think that kind of summarises that both are as hard as each other because there is very little appetite, I think, um, at least in the political sphere, for uh, reforming the school admissions system. Um, But I think it's one that really does need to be taken seriously Um, A paper that I did with Anna and Claire Crawford showed that a lot of the um, difference in trajectories, the educational trajectories of kids from different backgrounds that were equally high achieving before they entered secondary school could be explained by the sorting into different types of secondary schools. And I think this is quite a crucial juncture for us to be thinking about the ways in which pupils end up, you know, from relatively high starting places going along different routes.
1: So from my perspective, I mean, I totally agree with with what Lindsay's just said, but um, if you're going to be ambitious, be ambitious. I mean, I don't think you can crack the social mobility problem in a country where you have such um, large gaps in income uh, between different groups. I think the fear of parents is absolutely natural and indeed in many respects a positive thing because you care about your children. And I think if the consequences of you know, just going one rung down that ladder is huge in terms of income and even more than income security, economic security. Um, I think that it's going to be very difficult to get people to to address the social mobility issue. So I think we need to address earnings inequality. Um, I think there are other advantages of taking that route because I think also what we need to do is think about the skills mix we need. One of the reasons why people plough into degrees, regardless of the subject and what, they, you know, what they're going to do with it, is, is the fear of not being the graduate. And that, in turn, is linked to you know, large income gaps between uh, different jobs. So I think that's, that's something that we really need to take seriously. Now, if you then turn and say, well, yes, that's sort of pie in the sky and we're never going to do that in this country, um, the next thing I would do is get far more serious about targeting resource. Uh, we are spending a lot subsidising relatively, you know, middle income stroke higher income people say for nursery provision and if we were serious about social mobility we need to divert some of that resource to supporting kids from the poorest backgrounds so that when they start school their skills are at a higher level and they're not at such a disadvantage from the get-go
0: well those are those are certainly challenging uh certainly challenging recommendations uh it's exactly the problem with um uh, school admissions that you refer to is that uh, pa- parents who have uh, want to protect their children um uh who have moved to these um uh, particular areas will be absolutely furious at that uh, parents uh with more income who are getting subsidies for their childcare will be furious uh at changing that um and as you say uh actually changing the earnings distribution itself is really very um very difficult and i think i think wrapped up in in your answers is is part of the answer to the question why haven't we um uh, done a lot better on this and the answer is it's incredibly hard or at least it's incredibly hard unless you're going to upset a large swathe of the middle classes which um which politicians are rather loath um are rather loath to do um so that's a, a another slightly depressing set of um uh, conclusions. I mean, do, do either of you have any, um, any anything else that you might be able to come up with, which you know uh, might have a higher probability of, of happening?
1: Yes, I mean, well, it- I, oh, sorry, Lindsay.
0: Oh, good, excellent, lots of things.
1: <laughs> so, okay, so you, you you're absolutely right, Paul. I mean, you've painted a picture where um, certainly, you know, in the situation we're in now, it all feels frightening, and anything that you do to try and improve social mobility is likely to upset parents at the top end of the income distribution. Um, then there is another world where we recognize that the most important input into education and learning is teaching, uh, that we decide that we're serious about investing in teaching. And if you're investing in teaching, that means investing in teachers, but also investing in the things that make them better teachers. Um, and um, in a world where we're putting res- more resource into the education system, where you're trying to improve the quality of teaching and learning right across the piece, Uh, parents may get a little bit more relaxed um, about which school they go to uh, or their child goes to, I should say. Um, So I don't think we give up on the project. I think it's very difficult to do what we've just discussed in a downturn where you're spending less on education. I think it's far easier to think about more imaginative ways of getting really serious about the quality of education and training in this country with a big investment. And, you know, post-COVID, we're going to have to have an economic recovery that focuses on human capital. This seems to be the moment to be thinking seriously about this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I think that we also need to be thinking longer term about the skills that are required in the economy and linking up labour market policy with education and skills policy so that we've got a joined up approach that sees what opportunities are available, that sees where we have a skills mismatch and tries to help young people to identify where they can benefit from certain gaps in the market, where they can train to really take you know, best advantage of the opportunities that are that are available, as well as obviously having a labor market policy that incentivizes new opportunities to to arise and, you know, new, you know, economically stable and fulfilling opportunities as well. Not this kind of low pay gig economy cycle.
0: Yeah. Do do we have I mean, are there lessons from either things that we've done in the past or other countries have done which um, might guide
1: us? So I think countries that have invested a lot in early years provision, um, and I might appear to be contradicting myself, but it's interesting that many of those countries haven't gone for the targeted route. They've just gone for spending an awful lot on trying to ensure high quality early years provision for all. Um, they seem to have narrower socioeconomic gaps. So I think that's something that we can think of. Um, I think Lindsay's point about um when you've got such a tight link between the price of a house and what kind of school your child goes to and differences in the achievement levels between schools, um, it really exacerbates what's a difficult situation, you know, anyway. And I think changing the way that we admit students even before you get to lotteries could be improved. Um, as I say, much easier to do that if you're also investing in schools at the same time.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the examples of countries that are doing well in this setting, and this comes back to Anna's excellent point, have lower income inequality. So, you know, if we're really going to be serious, we need to, we need to tackle both at the same time. As you said, Paul, that might be a slightly pie in the sky type approach to this. But I do think that we do need to get serious about the, the kind of long run impacts of having such, such wide gaps in earnings between people.
1: I think also there's something in what you've just said, Lindsay, about sort of what can we learn from, from other countries and do effectively here. And you were talking about the skills mismatch or rather thinking long and hard about what skills are really needed in the labour market. Now, I mean, just to be really clear, obviously, as uh, you know, someone who works in a university, I don't think that the only aim of university is to prepare young people for the labour market. But I do think that people who go to university want to be prepared for the labor market which is not quite the same thing and so having a hard look about at uh, the sort of types of skill and thinking how we might better embed them in the qualifications that we offer so you know nobody's arguing that you don't need uh, you know large numbers of arts and humanities graduates but thinking about the times types of skill that graduates need to be really effective in the labor market and that's changing over time you know, your your humanities um, student probably needs digital now, and therefore, if they need digital, they probably need to to have some maths to go with that, and and that's fine. You know, we can we can do a broad curriculum, but our university system is set up to be quite narrow at the moment. So that's something that's maybe a little bit more achievable that we should think about in terms of reform.
0: No, absolutely, and I mean, I should be clear. I, I really don't think this is um, this is pie in the sky. I think the uh, what what the two of you have laid out is. It is a long-term strategy across a whole range of uh, issues from early years through school resources and how people are, uh, how people uh, get to particular kinds of schools through the way that the university system works and the relationship between uh, our skills system and the labour market, the role of apprenticeships um, and, and the whole slew of policies that we have when it comes to uh, skills and labour market um, policy. Now, that is very difficult. That is very long term. Uh, but those are all things that we kind of know how to do. And if we had a 10 year um, strategy to achieve that, I, it seems to me that there are things that we could achieve. But one of the things that is rather depressing about um, government policy for decades is that we never appear to have any kind of long term plan or consistency across these things. Policies get, you know, put in place and ripped up very quickly ministers come and go um, very quickly strategies come and go very quickly and the key thing about social mobility is it is a generational issue uh, and politicians seem not very good at grappling with generational issues Um, uh, perhaps a a last word from 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 each of you and then uh, sadly it'll be turned time to wrap up anna
1: Ah, Last word. Thank you very much. Well, uh, thank you for the discussion, Paul. I mean, I think the important thing for us to remember as we go forward post-COVID is that our young people are paying a pretty heavy price at the moment for our response to COVID. And one of the things that we could do at this moment is to think long and hard about investing in our school system and indeed in our education training system more generally. Um, to try and make sure that we're giving the next generation the skills they need to cope with what is undoubtedly going to be a more difficult economic situation.
2: Thanks. Um, The last point that you made, Paul, was a really important one. This does require a long-term strategy and a joined-up approach across multiple different government departments, but also long-term view. Um, And it's kind of ironic given that all political parties agree with the idea that we need to equalise opportunities for children. Um, that they can't all sign up to some kind of pledge that says, regardless of who's in power, this is the strategy that we're all going to work towards going forward. That kind of joined-up approach would see something that we could implement and that could last through, you know, a longer period of time than a political cycle.
0: Well, let's hope we do. Uh, let's hope we do get there. Uh, I worry, I suppose, that whilst politicians are willing to pay lip service to that, uh, they're less willing to uh, face down the. Uh, challenges that they would have to that because these are big changes uh, which would affect a lot of people. But it seems to me that this is one of the one of the biggest challenges facing us, and it really is incumbent upon upon politicians to start to deal with those issues. And some of them, as you say, some of those steps are things we can start to do, uh, particularly in terms of investing in the education system. Um, We'll have to stop there. We're not going to solve the problem of social mobility uh, today, but I think we've got quite a long way towards understanding the problem and the sorts of things that we might need to do. Um, If you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well. and We look forward to speaking to you again soon.